Florida is hard to write about. Various Floridians have tried in a variety of ways, from comedy to drama, from fiction to nonfiction. Some people pin the experience down exactly, sharpening the details to their worldview as a Floridian or as a visitor to our peninsula. We have such a variety, as various as the cultures and peoples of the state. Many have gotten close, but none have hit it on the nose, for me at least. Until, that is, I read this. There is of course an affinity between people and places. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. This was before man, and if there be such a thing as racial memory, the consciousness of land and water must lie deeper in the core of us than any knowledge of our fellow beings. We were bred of earth before we were born of our mothers. Once born, we can, without mother or father, or any other kin, or any friend, or any human love. We cannot live without the earth or apart from it, and something is shriveled in a man's heart when he turns away from it and concerns himself only with the affairs of men. And along with our deep knowledge of the earth is a preference of each of us for certain different kinds of it. For the earth is various as we are various. One man longs for the mountains and does not even need to have been a child of the mountains to have this longing. And another man yearns for the valleys or the plains. A seaman I know said that he was making a great effort to assure himself of going to hell. For the Bible says that in heaven there shall be no more sea. And heaven for him is a place of great waters. We at the creek need and have found only very simple things. We must need a certain blandness of season, with a longer and more beneficent heat than many require, for there is never too much sun for us, and through the long summers we do not complain. We need the song of birds, and there is none finer than the red bird. We need the sound of rain coming across the hamaca, and the sound of the wind in trees, and there is no more sensitive Aeolian harp than the palm. The pine is good, for the needles brushing one another have a great softness, and we have the wind in the pines too. We need above all, I think, a certain remoteness from urban confusion. And while this can be found in other places, Cross Creek offers it with such beauty and grace that once entangled with it, no other place seems possible for us. Just as when truly in love, none other offers the comfort of the beloved. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait Five Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. That was my friend Bailey DeVoe reading the words of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings from her book, Cross Creek. Together, we'll be telling Marjorie's story through her own words and the words of others, a story about legacy, memory, and the ways we make a place our own. That's the incomparable Willie Green. He is a blues man, known for his craggy high voice and quick fingers. He's in his 80s, though we aren't clear on his exact birth year. He was born in Alabama, a young black man in the Jim Crow South, from a household so poor that he quit his education in order to help his family. He traveled the eastern seaboard as a farmer working in all manner of crops in order to make any amount of cash. It was in this era of his life that he fell in love with music, listening to blues and illegal black establishments in Montgomery. 
He learned to play himself and eventually set up a home for himself in South Florida where he would continue to work by day and play by night. In his 50s, he decided to settle further north in Ocala. To make some more money from tips, Willie Green took his music, his guitar, and his voice to a quaint folk restaurant nearby just outside of Gainesville on the other side of Payne's Prairie. Technically, it's in the town of Hawthorne, a city with a population of about 1,400. In actuality, the restaurant is inside of a small, unincorporated town named Cross Creek, and the restaurant where Willie plays is called The Yearling. If The Yearling sounds like an odd name for a restaurant, I don't blame you. Never fear, the owners don't have an unusual sense of branding. Rather, the restaurant is named for a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel called The Yearling, considered by some literary historians to be the first great young adult fiction in the canon of American literature. It was written by Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings, the second of the three famous figures in Florida history that happened to be named Marjorie. Rawlings was an author who moved to Florida in her 30s and made her entire literary career as a Florida writer in both fiction and nonfiction. She lived for most of that time in Cross Creek, owning and operating an orange grove amongst the dozen or so other residents. It still exists to this day, a relic of our frontier past in the modern age. I think women are more likely, women writers from a certain time period, um, are more likely to be called regionalist, regional writers, local color writers, and be written off. So somehow we call Twain, we don't call a local writer ever, but we do call Mary Wilkins Freeman, Sarah Orne Jewett, Marjorie Keenan Rawlings. Um, I think these writers have been written off, I think. That's Dr. Jill Jones, an English professor at Rollins College in Winter Park. She has written countless articles about Florida's great authors, including several about Marjorie herself. Dr. Jones and I chatted on the first semi-cool day of September in her sunny office. If you hear whistles and cheers in the background, that's Rollins' lacrosse team practicing on the field outside. Well, that the first, I was thinking of that first sentence when you said that, right? Uh, Cross Creek is a bend in a country road by land and the flowing of Loch Lusa Lake into Orange Lake by water. I mean, she's not afraid of a complicated sentence. The city is off the main roads, carving a southern path that borders the Payne's Prairie Preserve State Park. The indicators of rural Florida mark your path as you go. An abandoned billiards bar, an old Pepsi vending machine with its art peeling off from the sun, a shirtless man driving a lawnmower across his property. Places where people are actually living become fewer and far between, and your horizon just becomes large walls of trees with thick green water right on the other side. In the middle of this brush-lined road on the other side of a pair of long turns is the Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings Historic State Park. There isn't much to it, just a handful of acres. There's a parking lot a few feet from the boat launch. Most of the people in this area were there for the water. My car went to the empty parking lot for Marjorie's old home. You pass through a rusty gate and are greeted by this quote. It is necessary to leave the impersonal highway, to step inside the rusty gate and close it behind. One is now inside the orange grove, out of one world and in the mysterious heart of another. And after long years of spiritual homelessness, of nostalgia, here is that mystic loveliness of childhood again. Here is home. The physical act of opening the gate and being greeted with this introduction feels performative. You are play-acting now, and they've brought you into the show. There are a few structures here. A central farmhouse, a woodshed, a maintenance shed, a chicken coop, a duck pen. 
the path ends at the barn, and a flock of four sandhill cranes stood in my path. I don't often find birds intimidating, they're much too flighty, but these cranes were in a line, like the beachhead in a war zone guarding the entranceway. They watched me as I stepped off the path to avoid disturbing their position. The property back here was quiet. An antique yellow car sat under a carport. Old boats were on a bench as if they were being repaired. Chickens clucked and ducks quacked. Clothes hung out to dry on a line attached to the main house. There wasn't any other living soul here. For a long time, I felt like a ghost. I caught a glimpse of myself in a pane of glass and jumped. My pink baseball hat had never looked more out of place. I wasn't supposed to be here. Other than the old bottle of Windex sitting on the porch of the home, everything was from the period. The out of place thing was me. Like the specter I was, I left quickly in search of a friendly face and some company. I found that two minutes down the road, in the unusual little restaurant where Willie Green plays his blues. It's probably one of the single most unique places I've ever dined. It's dark, like a hunting lodge, with soft brown wood lining every corridor and dining room. Right inside the front door are first edition copies of Marjorie's books in glass cases. There's pictures of Marjorie, screenshots from the film adaptations of both The Yearling and Cross Creek. Along the hallways are bookshelves lined with books of all varieties, including an entire section obviously dedicated to Rawlings' novels. One room had a massive diorama overflowing with taxidermized versions of Florida's animals. I was served fried conch and gator. It was a warm place, friendly and local. Willie was not there, as he was in the hospital, but was expected to be back soon. Cross Creek was a curve in the road, hidden behind the trees, but everything here was so rich, overflowing with character, and the draw to this city was evident, even nearly a century after Marjorie moved here. What matter of man and woman could this be, making a home under an oak tree like some pair of wood animals? Were they savage outlaws? People who might more profitably be in jail? I had no way of knowing. The Florida backcountry was new and beautiful, but of the people I knew nothing. The wild home at the edge of the woods haunted me. I made pictures to myself of the man and woman, very young, who had come and gone. Somehow I knew that they would be not fierce, but gentle. I took up my own life at the creek. Marjorie Kinnon was a Wisconsin native born in Madison, the daughter of a patent office worker. She was writing from a young age and attempted to turn it into a career. Frankly, it was not so successful at first. Her and her husband, Charles Rawlings, both worked as newspaper journalists, but Marjorie wanted to pivot into fiction. She was mostly unsuccessful into her mid-30s until she suddenly bought 40 acres of orange grove in Cross Creek, picked up, and left for the Sunshine State. It was 1928 and she was 32. She had visited the state in March of that year and was struck immediately by the splendor of Florida. By November, Cross Creek was their home. She had faith that the Orange Grove could be a supplemental income as she took to writing as her full-time job. And take to it she did. She started writing short stories almost immediately, and one, titled Gal Youngin, won the famous O. Henry Award for short stories in 1933. That same year, she released her first novel, South Moon Under. For a novel in the era it was written, it's a bold piece of fiction about a young man working the production of Moonshine during Prohibition, deep in the woods. The protagonist must not only evade the authorities, but also his cousin who seeks to bring him to justice. 
Men had reached into the scrub and along its boundaries, had snatched what they could get, and had gone away, uneasy in that vast indifferent peace. For a man was nothing, crawling ant-like among the myrtle bushes under the pines. Now they were gone, it was though they had never been. The silence of the scrub was primordial. The wood thrush crying across it might have been the first bird in the world, or the last. From her very first novel, Marjorie was writing about Florida with depth and richness, capturing an unusual sense of wilderness and its tenuous balance. The book was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in fiction, but it never gained true popularity. Regardless, she was finally living her dream. She had been working to be a novelist for years. The missing piece was Florida, and Marjorie buried herself deep in that environment. She had found a place that felt real to her, and it made her fiction engrossing and vibrant. You can almost smell the trees, feel the wind on your neck, and the crunch of the dirt beneath your feet. It's real, and you're there. Though 1933 was the same year she began crafting what would become her most seminal work, she and her husband went through a divorce. Charles and Marjorie had lived together in Cross Creek for five years, a beautiful and adventurous young couple, but it wasn't sustainable in the long run, and Charles left the little hamlet forever. Marjorie was alone in her home, but not in her Floridian wilderness. She found great comfort in her neighbors, characters that she would soon reflect in a series of essays. That wouldn't be for another nine years. First, Marjorie had a novel to write, and it would define her legacy. Picture, for a moment, a deer. Just a standard deer, male or female, young or old. I can say with almost complete certainty that the animal you are imagining is a white-tailed deer, and that's not surprising. They are abundant and can be found in North America, South America, Europe, and Asia. In the Americas, there is no hooved animal more abundant. In Florida, behind every tree line is sure to be a gathering of these deer. Along our highways as dusk falls, whether you're in our central highlands or our coastal lowlands, the white-tailed deer slip through the brush. They're not exactly unique to us, but they're certainly our most gentle local animal. They're nervous and flighty and bounce through the woods away from any danger. The fawns, however, do not have the power to bound away when danger arrives. Instead, they will bury themselves in a nestle of vegetation and keep themselves away from the trouble. This is exactly what happens in Marjorie's seminal work, The Yearling. It's set in the late 1800s in an area called Big Scrub, which is currently part of the Ocala National Forest. It follows a young boy named Jody, who lives with his father Penny and his mother, Ora. They're frontier settlers, Florida crackers in the dying age of the Florida cracker. While out in the woods, Penny is bitten by a snake, and to remove the venom, he has to kill a deer and use its liver to suck out the poison. The deer was a mother, and Jody discovered that it had a fawn buried in the brush, hiding from danger. Jody's mother had lost all of her babies and childbirth except for Jody, so other than his parents, Jody was essentially alone. The little deer became his friend. He names it Flag. The fawn lifted its nose, scenting him. He reached out one hand and laid it on the soft neck. The touch made him delirious. He moved forward on all fours until he was close beside it. He put his arms around its body. A light convulsion passed over it, but it did not stir. He stroked its sides as gently as though the fawn were a china deer, and he might break it. Its skin was softer than the white coonskin knapsack. It was sleek and clean and had a sweet scent of grass. He rose slowly and lifted the fawn from the ground. 
its legs hung limply. They were surprisingly long, and he had to hoist the fawn as high as possible under his arm. Except, Flag gets older, turning from a fawn into the eponymous yearling, too large to be kept safe in the home. Not to mention that there's a black bear outside, stalking the same territory that Jody and his family depend on to survive. The situation becomes volatile, and in a desperate attempt to keep his family safe, Jody's father demands that Jody kill his yearling. When the yearling is wounded, Jody has to deal the final shot. Jody threw the gun aside and dropped flat on his stomach. He retched and vomited and retched again. He clawed into the earth with his fingernails. He beat it with his fists. The sinkhole rocked around him. A far roaring became a thin humming. He sank into blackness as into a dark pool. Afterwards, Jody departs into the woods, heartbroken and devastated, certain that he is a monster and that the world will never be good enough ever again. For many, this scene is one of the most devastating in young adult fiction, more difficult to manage than any other similar scene. It's piercing and full and shocking. When Jody eventually returns home, he is different, having himself turned from a fawn to a yearling, ready now for the uncertain despairs of adulthood. The plot is simple. So simple that I can tell the majority of it in just a short period of time. What sets it apart, however, are the details. It's over 400 pages, rich in environment and mood, heavy on finesse. The movement of a finger, the sound of the wind, the color of a tree. It's not just a parable about maturity and humanity. It's a captured world, a piece of art, poetic. For this, it won the Pulitzer Prize for the novel in the year after it was released, 1939. The novel was edited by a famous editor, Maxwell Perkins, who had made a name for himself as the editor for F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. This connection and the success of the book not only financially changed Marjorie's life, it changed the world as she knew it. She was also in correspondence with Hemingway and Fitzgerald and more. She was 40 now, a divorcee who had thrown away her whole life to invest in Florida. She had no idea if any of it was going to pay off, but she committed to the world she lived in, not just in aesthetic, but in story. She had no sense of irony when it came to the hardworking crackers, nor a lack of respect for the natural world that surrounded both her and her characters. Her words are empathetic and specific, twisting and voluminous. You never quite know where her sentences are going when they start. Their construction is so dense. Marjorie spun her words and images with great affection and her love for her subjects bursts from the page. Well, Hurston to me is writing about the the community mm -hmm. and what community does for each other and you're sort of always immersed in the culture, yeah. right? Whereas Rawlings is out here with, with the trees and the snakes and the and, and these people she doesn't understand. Like Hurston is an insider and she's pretending to be an outsider, but she's really an insider showing you a culture and its value and everything about it in the most colorful way. But Rawlings is coming at this culture, she's like, this is fascinating. She's almost like a, some sort of anthropologist, which of course Hurston really was, but she's just like, who are these people? And look at the trees. <laughs> you know? But it's been 80 years since that award, and according to one Florida author, Lauren Groff, the yearling's legacy may not be as enduring as we would hope. Lauren Groff is a Florida author herself, hailing from out of state just as Marjorie. Her collection of stories titled Florida was an inspiration for the creation of this show. It's a beautiful read, brimming with the same complex feelings and vibrant imagery as a Rawlings book. 
Groff analyzes Marjorie in the modern age and notes that, though the yearling is remembered fondly, it's fading. It sells far less than any other classics of that era, and students who have to read it as part of their curriculum struggle to get through it. I myself never had to read it and never even knew The Yearling was set in Florida until maybe two years ago. It passed me by and I had no idea. Groff points out that Marjorie's story itself leaves her behind. Because, frankly, she wasn't a tragic figure. She was a woman who struggled for a few years to make it as a writer but reached major success just one time. Her other novels received mixed reviews and no major publicity. Cross Creek, her series of essays about the city she called home that was published in 1942, is complicated. Parts of it are so compelling, essays dedicated to the little details that Marjorie found charming and honest. One chapter simply describes the majesty of a magnolia tree. Some chapters are just dedicated to the seasons in Florida, similar though they may be. However, one early chapter describes her black neighbors and falls into stereotype, condescension, and dehumanizing language. It's not a perfect picture of Florida, but it is a picture of a white woman in the early 20th century in Florida. She's ignorant to her own ignorance, casting her eyes outward rather than in. The race stuff is, some of it's so disturbing. Mm -hmm. You know, her search for her perfect maid, um, the part where she buys the black girl from her father. Um, on the other hand, first of all, I think we should be teaching Cross Creek because I do think when we get rid of every trace of racism, I think people think it didn't exist and it's important to remember it did even among people like Rawlings. And there's a lot, there's not just about race, but about class. I mean, she looks at um, the Florida crackers, as she calls them, and she sort of gives us a different sense of that term than we might otherwise have. Um, you know, she talks about people who are really poor, and I often feel like um, that's a demographic that gets overlooked. Um, and, I, and her writing is flawed about it, but that's what makes it so incredible. It's very specific, very gritty. So, yeah, I do. I, I think she's already fading from the mainstream. I think she's already uh, moving to the side. After Cross Creek, her life took a strange turn. She was sued for libel after describing a friend of hers in a less than flattering way, saying she looked like a man. Marjorie had a heart attack in 1952, published her last novel, which was not received with much praise, and died of a hemorrhage the following year. In blues music, there is a concept known as a maverick stanza. It's sort of a filler line, fragments or ideas inside of lyrics that have been repeated and varied and improved over hundreds of years. Blues music has a long and rich history, influencing folk, bluegrass, rock, jazz, everything. Those maverick stanzas work because blues music is about the song's feeling and instrumentation. You can hear lines like, from the day I was born, or I've got a girl, over and over and over again. The blues performer will build on that simple idea and flourish them, bringing their personal catharsis and artistry into every note and every line. The template remains the same, but the personality comes from the creator. These early Florida writers didn't know it at the time, but they were forming the maverick stanzas of modern Florida literature with every sentence they wrote. We are fortunate that, before the midpoint of the 20th century, we had three unique authors, all women, who saw Florida from their own pulpits and wrote 
without hesitance. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas saw the value of our natural ecosystem. Zora Neale Hurston brought the experience of black women in Florida to the mainstream. Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings believed in the balance between humanity and the world we lived in, and that Florida was not for everyone. She saw that those who chose to live here made a place here. In her empathy, in her willingness to understand, she put into words the rhetoric that we live in today. Willie Green put out an album called Cross Creek Blues, full of music inspired by the little town that Marjorie put on the map. Lauren Groff speaks of Marjorie's fading legacy that her memory does not carry on. I hate to disagree with someone who I admire so much, but Lauren Groff's work is evidence that this isn't true. Willie's music is evidence that this isn't true. This podcast, you listening to this podcast, every time we wonder why we love this place, every time we chose to stay, all those things are part of her legacy. Sure, the yearling's popularity very well may be fading, but we are not. I'll leave the last word to Marjorie. Who owns Cross Creek? The Redbirds, I think, more than I, for they will have their nests even in the face of delinquent mortgages. And after I am dead, I who am childless, the human ownership of grove and field and hammock is hypothetical. But with a long line of redbirds and whippoorwills and blue jays and ground doves will descend from the present owners of nests in the orange trees, and their claim will be less subject to dispute than that of any human heirs. Cross Creek belongs to the wind and the rain, to the sun and the seasons, to the cosmic secrecy of seed, and beyond all, to time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. This is episode 3 of our 12-episode second season. Next week, for episode 4, we're going to garden. Bailey DeVoe is the voice of Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings today. She is a brilliant actress who I've had the pleasure to perform with countless times. If you're in the Tampa area, you can catch her in Wild Party the Musical at the Aeon Life Theater. You can grab your tickets to the show in the description below. Special thanks, of course, goes to Dr. Jill Jones, who's always a good chat about all American fiction, but especially Florida's greats. You can get a link to some of her work in the description below as well. In the show notes, you can also read Lauren Groff's article about Marjorie and listen to more of Willie Green's spectacular music. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in the description below. I read every single one, and I'm always looking to hear what you have to say about this show. Your reviews help it grow, and it helps me improve every single day. You can also reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. While you're there, why not share the episode with your friends? I'm sure you know someone who would love this show. I would love to hear from you. You can also send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com, especially if you have an idea for a future episode. I am always looking for more. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles in the description along with a link to more of their fantastic music. I'll be back next Monday with another story. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good week. <laughs>